There are intractable problems, knotted incapacities, wrong silo, trapped by administrative regulations into a cage of inaction only an attorney could love, and probably not an environmental or a human rights attorney. So the question becomes, how to peel apart the layers, face the brutal abuse and colonial rampage that resides in the bloodstream of native populations, as well as the toxic stress lying across and connecting cultures, native and non-native alike, particular to Alaska. You have joined us on Nature's Touch. Climate change is here. I'm your host, Robert Lundahl, filmmaker and journalist. Our topic today, government bureaucracy and neglect, the health of Alaska Native peoples in the face of climate change. Episode 10, Environment and Health in Alaska, Indicators and Influences. With me today is Patrick Anderson, a healthcare and tribal administrator with the Indian Health Service, the Macaw Tribe, and in his latest position, CEO of Alaska Rural Cap. My name is Patrick Anderson, uh, and I am myself Alaska Native. I come from two different tribes. So in my culture, uh, being matrilineal, we claim our mother's um, tribe as our predominant tribe. So I am Tlingit uh, Indian, and I come from the Eagle Moiety, and one of the clans in the Eagle Moiety is mine, the Shankokedi or Thunderbird. So uh, I was born in Alaska, uh, ended up living in Seattle for a number of years, uh, fortunate in some ways, unfortunate in others, but uh, that background led me to an undergraduate degree at Princeton University and a law degree at the University of Michigan. So when I returned to the uh, state of Alaska, um, I, I came back uh, listening to my mother's voice, which is that, uh, you know, after you've finished all of that, you really should go back to Alaska and, and to help uh, Alaska Native people. Uh, so that's what I did. And here I am uh, about 50 years later. This is Robin Carnine of Namapa First Peoples Radio. Thanks for joining Robert Lindahl and myself for a campfire conversation on Nature's Touch. Worried about climate change and other environmental issues? So are we. Thanks for tuning in. We all can make a difference. We talked about a number of things, um, and one of them was where to begin, because in our group at City University of New York, Hunter College, we were talking about environment and climate change. And you brought up health issues involving toxic stress and other matters that impact Native Alaskans disproportionately. Can you introduce us to that concept and what you meant by that and how it fits into the bigger picture of environment? I sure can. Um... Robert, uh, later in my career, um, I began to think that law was not really the field I wanted to be in. 
And the first position that I was hired to was a compactor, which is uh, Alaska Native organization that operates a contract with the United States government to administer healthcare within a certain region. During my tenure at that first job, I came across a study that to me explained a lot of the issues that Alaska Natives have faced. So uh, my mother attended a Catholic boarding school for uh, her uh, primary school uh, uh, and went to a Bureau of Indian Affairs boarding school for uh, high school. That was framed in a different way after I became familiar with the Adverse Childhood Experience Study and later on the whole world of toxic, tolerable, and normal stress. Uh, I'm not trained as a psychologist. I'm not, uh, I wasn't really into biology, chemistry, but um, since discovering the Adverse Childhood Experience Study, I have related it to a number of root causes of problems and issues that not only Alaska Natives, but non-Natives have faced, particularly in Alaska. And so in the world of toxic stress, behind me are, uh, is the village of Kivalina with about 400 people. Uh, and within that community, a very high number of residents will have significant amounts of experience that could qualify them to be a regular sufferer of toxic stress. And there are a lot of neurobiological and physical and chemical reactions to the stress response that I won't go into. But what it does is it affects normal day-to-day -day living for all people. So uh, when we were talking about climate change, if that was an empty peninsula behind me, there's no problem or issues. Uh, nature tears uh, land up um, constantly, but when you put people onto it, uh, it not only uh, changes the dynamics uh, based on location, based on the kind of uh, weather that hits it, but it changes dynamics because there are now people there who have lives and their lives are impacted and affected by what happens to them. Um, if they're used to it, if it's normal, that is a different response than if it is unusual and out of the ordinary. So uh, toxic stress has been a huge part of my thinking in terms of the root causes of a lot of problems that strike Alaska over, uh, over the past uh, half a century or actually more than a century. What are the challenges that native Alaskans in a village like Kivalina face? specifically? Uh, well, the first is, is that um, the largest community next to Kivalina uh, is uh, Kotzebue. Kotzebue has about 3,3200 people living in it. That's not a real large community. It's rural by U.S. standards, uh, but it is the regional hub. And so in order to get to Kivalina, which has no roads, uh, you need to fly from Kotzebue or from Anchorage. Uh, there's a 3,000-foot runway uh, on the uh, peninsula that Kivalina is located on. So any airplane that goes in has to be able to land on a gravel runway of about 3,000 feet in length in sometimes very challenging weather. Uh, in addition to that, you can see that it's surrounded by water, but wells don't work there. So they get their water source from another source bring in raw water into a huge tank 
uh, I think it's a 7,000, 8,000 gallon tank in Kivalina. And from there, they have to purify it. And from that point, uh, I don't believe all of the homes are connected. Uh, and, and in order to get water, sometimes you have to drive to, in a, not, not in a vehicle necessarily, but you have to have water picked up and delivered to your home. Uh, same thing is true with fuel. Uh, the Chukchi Sea and that area around Kivalina is covered in ice for a lot of the winter. Uh, and as a result, uh, there aren't any barges coming in with fuel. So there are some huge fuel tanks that carry all of the fuel supply for the community for the entire year. Uh, and they fill it maybe once a year. Uh, they have to have the money to be able to do that. And in addition, they have to have uh, good weather and they have to schedule the barge in order to be able to come in plus the financing that comes in. And then the infamous honey bucket, uh, that was in some places still used, uh, but people don't have uh, sewer systems. So they have to take their raw sewage and uh, take it to a lagoon. Uh, and the challenges of course for uh, food is that by the time an apple gets from Washington State to a Kivalina, it's not very appetizing or appealing. Um, and as a result, a lot of uh, Western diet, which has been introduced into many of our communities is very expensive. Um, milk can cost 10, 11, $12 a gallon. Uh, fuel can, can cost seven, eight, nine uh, $9 a gallon. Uh, and because the average temperature in this area during January is about 15 degrees below zero, you use a lot of fuel. So there are a lot of uh, challenges that exist within a small community like Kivalina, uh, created by its remoteness, uh, by its lack of infrastructure, uh, and uh, by lack of good paying jobs, uh, ha having the ability to survive there in a very high cost environment. Uh, multiple challenges, and that's in addition to the health challenges uh, that exist. Uh, uh, just having a child can be very complicated in a village like Kivalina. So when uh, a pregnant female is within a certain period of time for delivery, uh, she is taken to Kotzebue, where she spends three, four, five, or six weeks, depending on the seriousness of the pregnancy, uh, waiting for the child to be born. If it's a high-risk pre pregnancy, then it's into Anchorage, where they will wait for the same period of time. Wow. So I think of the word empathy. And some of us in the lower 48, you know, we think uh, climate change is a large issue that we can't really get our heads around, and it seems to be more of a political issue sometimes, but uh, here in Kivalina, we have we have a different uh, perspective. What would you like people to understand in terms of of empathy for the people there? Uh, first of all, the people in Kivalina and in the Northwest uh, Arctic are extremely hardy. Uh, they have survived and thrived in an uh, an environment where most people wouldn't even consider. Uh, living. And they've done it by extensive use of local resources. So uh, in the area around the Kivalina, uh, the local people still harvest uh, uh, whale. They don't get very many whale. Uh, one of the problems that's occurred is that as the pack ice is retreated uh, in the Northwest Arctic, it's uh, 
taken away the ability of, of whale hunters to get out to where the migratory paths are. But traditionally, uh, a whale or two would be harvested and would provide a lot of food for the community. Uh, walruses, caribou, uh, whitefish, uh, and then in addition to that, a great deal of trade. So there's an extensive trade network uh, of individuals all over the Northwest Arctic and the North Slope who, when they get foods uh, that they have unique access to, will trade. So there's a great deal of hardiness and survival. But when a, a traditionally nomadic people uh, were located in one central area, it was to have access to education and to services like healthcare. Uh, the brutal truth about uh, native uh, life uh, back in the 40s, 50s, and 60s is that there was a lot of disease, a lot of health issues. Uh, and so providing healthcare services in a remote area like this is challenging. Uh, Kivalina has a community health aid clinic where they do evaluations of uh, routine types of uh, problems and issues, but uh, and then individuals who have more serious problems will go into either COTS to be or into Anchorage for medical treatment. Weather hampers that uh, quite a bit, um, and there are severe weather patterns that exist up here. This is Robin Carnine of Namapa First People's Radio. You're listening to Nature's Touch with host Robert Lindahl. Thanks for joining us by the campfire. Don't go away. That same pack ice that I talked about that has been retreating also protects this peninsula from the worst ravages of winter storms. The pack ice itself absorbs a lot of the impacts. A lot of the water uh, doesn't then wash up onto the very uh, fragile peninsula. On top of that, the warming climate is melting the permafrost. So when that uh, permafrost um, is no longer there, the uh, soil is more, uh, it's more difficult to protect. So uh, in all the pictures that you see of Kivalina, there are a lot of rocks around it. The rocks are there to try to protect the uh, soil that exists. And then the migratory patterns and the fish, they uh, live in a certain temperature, they return at a certain time of the year, and when the climate starts to shift, those migratory patterns shift, uh, it may be more expensive to get out to where the uh, resources are. Uh, I mentioned fuel can cost eight, nine, ten dollars a gallon, and uh, you don't um, you don't go by uh, miles per gallon in a, a small boat, you go by gallons per hour, and uh, when you're spending a, a few hundred dollars to try to get out to a place to harvest something, um, the, the cost becomes sometimes prohibitive. Same is true with bullets. Bullets have been very expensive in the Northwest Arctic for uh, quite some time now. So all of these challenges come together and add to the stress that a community is experiencing. Systems interactions between people and their food resources, climate, and the place that they live can become overwhelming. Can you give me a snapshot of what kinds of health impacts you began to see when you're when you were working in these villages and and uh, both as an attorney and um, as a healthcare provider? Uh, yes, um, 
it was puzzling to me why Alaska Natives had higher rates of autoimmune diseases, higher rates of cancer, uh, higher rates of diabetes. Um, a, a lot of the uh, transmissible uh, diseases ran rampant. Uh, a lot of um, upper respiratory uh, diseases and issues. So when you are in a place that um, has substandard housing, uh, air exchanges aren't as frequent, mold becomes a problem, uh, and the average household size is fairly high, and it's a small, close-knit community. So if, if some kind of a transmissible disease comes in, like uh, um, a flu, it can move through the community very quickly. So something like the uh, COVID uh, virus uh, can move through very crowded places very quickly. And we did have that experience in Western Alaska. Uh, and so a lot of villages did shut down. But it was puzzling why a lot of these other issues existed. And one of the points made, uh, the scientific points made by the Adverse Childhood Experience Study is that toxic stress can take a significant amount of time off of an average lifespan. So. Uh, in the Adverse Childhood Experience Study, they studied 10 different experiences that children have. If you accumulated six or more of those, what the data said is that you have, um, your cohort has on average a 20, almost 20 years shorter lifespan than people who have none of those uh, 10 experiences. Uh, and as I began to look at uh, why that happened, what the root causes were, it turns out that a lot of the stress chemicals that stay in your body for longer periods of time actually ravage your body. So it explains a lot of the autoimmune diseases. Uh, arthritis was a huge problem in uh, much of, of Alaska. But when you look at the um, stress chemicals, the inflammation that stays in your body as a toxically stressed adult, uh, it starts to explain a little bit of the reason why some of these things happen. With cancers, uh, smoking is something that gives people relief from stress. Uh, and so we have a very high rate of smoking within our communities. Uh, and then uh, we also had in other parts of Alaska, a lot of smoked foods, so smoked salmon. Uh, people would uh, have uh, wood stoves in their home. So you get uh, introduced to a lot of different uh, pollutants as well. So. Um, one physician that I worked with uh, years and years ago told me that the um, physicians at the Alaska Native Medical Center were probably among the most experienced uh, in stomach cancers because they had a very high rate of stomach cancer among Alaska Natives uh, back in the uh, 90s and 2000s. Uh, so now those are a few of the reasons, Robert, um, that I believe that the health impacts are a little bit more severe in the Indian country and Alaska Native country than they are for the rest of the country. Not to minimize that we do have problems in all of, the, all of our areas. Well, when we talked in our pre-interview yesterday, we went through a lot of these topics and I thought, oh my gosh, there's a lot on the table here to discuss. And one of them to backtrack is the historic relationship between tribes and the United States government, the Russian government, uh, colonizing forces, if you will. And I was surprised to learn that, however well-intentioned, when, let's say, a school or a church is built, 
it reflects a kind of tie down to a place or location or architecture that was basically imposed from the outside, whereas many of these cultures may have been highly nomadic. Do you want to comment about that? I was thinking of the, the impacts of that too, you know, that not just the stresses of the place, but you have, um, you know, with the boarding schools in Canada, we have 750 bodies being found in a, in a field, which has shaken up, you know, the, the tribal entities of Canada and the political infrastructure and is a, a reckoning in a, a certain way. Historical trauma has always been around. Uh, it is the treatment and infliction of certain behaviors by a dominant culture uh, on a subdominant culture. But what was interesting about Alaska is that when the Russians came to Alaska, they claimed it under Western European law, but they did actually have very little uh, territory that they had any control over. So initially, very small parcels in Kodiak, a little bit in uh, Sitka, uh, a couple of forts that were heavily defended, was all the contact they had, and they were here predominantly for the sea otter, uh, and they harvested a lot of sea otter. It created a great deal of devastation among the Aleut hunters because the Aleut hunters were very prolific at being able to capture sea otters. And so there's a lot of uh, historical novels that are based on somewhat factual accuracy that talk about the intensely brutal treatment that Russians uh, inflicted upon the Aleuts in order to get them to hunt. And then when the treaty uh, of, uh, of session came and, and Russia gave up its rights to Alaska, uh, there were very few places that had any governmental structure. Uh, so what happened is that churches started to come in uh, and began dividing up Alaska. So we ended up with a, a number of churches, Presbyterians, Catholic, um, Evangelical Mission Covenant Church, Russian Orthodox, and each trying to impose their own will upon a culture that had developed over tens of thousands of years their own way of doing things. And so we ended up with cultural suppression. Uh, in Cake, one of the communities uh, that I'm familiar with, um, the, a lot of the historical um, artifacts, the, we call them atu, uh, they're, they're really a cultural part of our ceremonies, was burned uh, because of religious beliefs. Uh, Alaska Natives were not allowed to become citizens in the 1920s until they gave up their uh, their savage ways, and they had to have at least five white people attest uh, to them giving up their savage ways. Boarding schools. A number of my friends and colleagues tell me about how they were prevented from speaking their language, uh, how they were punished physically for doing that, and of course, separated by long distance from their families, sometimes for four, five, six, eight, nine years. Boarding schools went all the way down to Oklahoma, which is where my uncle went for, um, great uncle went for a little while. Uh, and, and so a lot of things uh, began happening that started uh, with this historically imposed trauma, but has now morphed into intergenerational trauma transmitted from grandparent to parent to um, children. Uh, and, and, uh, we're, we're now starting to understand the extent 
to which that has impacted Alaska Native cultures. So when you look at the uh, diffusion of things like alcohol abuse, it is, in, it is higher in populations that have higher numbers of these uh, adverse childhood experiences. When you look at drug abuse, one of the statistics that absolutely blew me away is that if you are a young male uh, between the ages of about 18 and 34, and you have six adverse experiences, you're about 4,200% more likely to become an IV drug user later in life than someone who has zero. So there's an explanation for a lot of these things that happen, but the long and the short of it is, is that when you have accumulated through this childhood acquired experience, uh, a level of toxic stress, your body is constantly trying to adjust. So we have among this population of, of high toxically stressed individuals, higher rates of crime, higher rates of addiction, higher rates of physical abuse, uh, sexual violence, uh, great deals of anger. And uh, trying to deal with that at the same time as you have these issues of adult acquired trauma. And when you have a huge storm and you're sitting in a place like Kivalina, winds are blowing 60, 80 miles an hour, and you're wondering what's going to happen to the foundation of your home if it's sitting right there on the shoreline, that stays with you day in and day out uh, and contributes to those health issues, to that shorter lifespan. There, there's very little joy to be found when you have high levels of toxic stress. So where do we go from here? And what is the responsibility of the federal government? And why haven't they stepped up and fixed this? I asked that question frequently uh, during Hurricane Katrina and its aftermath and New Orleans and all those areas that were heavily devastated. It shocked me that our response was so tepid. Uh, there was apparently a belief that it wasn't as serious as it needed to be. Um, and eventually the resources were placed there, but I, I still uh, hear that there are places in, in Louisiana that have not recovered. Uh, I look at the earthquake in Puerto Rico and the same thing, days and days and days of severe trauma inflicted upon the residents of Puerto Rico and a very tepid response. So I think a lot of it has to do with the politicians. Uh, many of them are uh, driven budgetarily, uh, but budget to them is just the numbers on what they feel they have to spend. It's not on mitigation of all the negative consequences that accrue to a disaster uh, in terms of human suffering, but actually in terms of impact to economies. There are two sides of the coin. Uh, the first is, is that had we responded appropriately to either of those disasters, there were huge commercial business interests that were engaged in the recovery uh, that benefited to a substantial amount. Um, interestingly enough, uh, there were a couple of FEMA shelters in Nia Bay, a place where I spent some time as their tribal health director, uh, that were uh, auctioned off, uh, sold after uh, the Katrina uh, immediate issues had been felt. So someone had to build those. This is Robin Carneen of Namapa First Peoples Radio. Thanks for sitting by our campfire at Nature's Touch. Please join Robert Lindahl next time as he continues to share important conversations 
about climate change and other environmental issues. If you'd like to contact Robert, please email him at robert at studio-rla.com. Be kind to Mother Earth. It's the only one we have. Thank you for being with us on Nature's Touch. Climate change is here. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and on climatechangeishere.com. Thank you to Robin Carnine and to the Greenbelt Society, Hunter College, and Pratt Institute.